Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined, as always, by Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in sunny California, and our producer, Dan Humiston, down in Florida, who's going to see some good live music of his own tonight, and uh, we'll let him comment on that. We've got a great, Grateful Dead show today from the Springer's Inn, or Ballroom, in Portland, Oregon, 53 years ago today, January 16th, 1970. We're going to dive right into the opening track here. It's... Uh, I'm going to just spoil the surprise. It's China Cannon to I Know Your Writer. Listen to Phil on the bass. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, that's uh, some of my favorite, Rob. They played China Cat, Sunflower, and I Know Your Rider forever. Um, but there's nothing like hearing Phil on that bass. Boo, ba-doo, 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 ba-doo. That's, I mean, that's just great stuff. Yeah, it's such classic Bill Kreutzmann, too, if you're listening to the, uh, the drum beat on there, too. It's, uh, you're very much like your steady uh, early days Billy Drummond. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's fun to listen to. You know, they got the great, you know, young voices on the I Know You Rider uh singing and and, uh, that's always fun to hear from that stage and you know we we spend time focusing on all throughout the Grateful Dead history and of course the farther along you go the older they get or it seems that they get or it seems that Jerry gets and words get forgotten and voices break and all sorts of things happen but when you're listening to the Grateful Dead from 1970 again we you know I know 73 77 uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Primal Dead you know that that kind of wrapped up in 69 but this is practically still 69 and you know they're they're just months away I guess or so from uh, releasing American Beauty uh, excuse me Working Man's Dead and we're going to play one or two tunes tonight from this show that we're going to wind up on Working Man's and they just come out and just kill it you know that it's, it's a great combination of a lot of the the late 60s primal dead stuff like a china rider and uh, some of the other tunes we're going to listen to in a few minutes but you know to me i think that you know the, the 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 stopping point of the entire show is easy wind which we'll get to at the end it's uh it's a song that i always think of as a, as a pig pen you know kind of rapping and jamming tune but the music that they play is just so incredible that we're, we're just going to be listening to music on that as well I, you know, I, I love stumbling upon these shows. I hadn't heard of this one, and now it's become a favorite. It's so funny. <laughs> I, I listen to stuff all the time where I'm like, how do I not know this one? And uh, within weeks, I've listened to it like six, seven, eight times. So uh, I'm not that familiar with the show either. And it's definitely inspired me to go back and, and take a second listen. Yeah, you know, it, it, everything about it from this place called the Springer's Inn, which I just love. Um, I don't know if they have it out uh, in your part of the world, but certainly in the Midwest and, and more prevalent up in Wisconsin, there's these groups called Life Springers, and they, you know, meet, and it's just a, you know, affirmation group and stuff like that that I have a buddy who went through it once, and, you know, whatever, good for them, and we support them. And we were driving along a highway in Wisconsin, and the stretch was sponsored by the Life Springers up there, so we just kind of adopted it and, you know, kind of named it, you know, the Springer Stretch of Highway, and so when I see Springer, it just makes me chuckle a little bit, but uh, reading about it, they one person called it an inn, one person called it a ballroom, one person said it hosted a lot of flea markets, and they all agreed it burned down in 1987. So, the boys found their niche in there, and uh, and really have a great night, and it's uh, it, it's fun to hear. So, what do these guys do? I mean, I'm intrigued now. What are the springers? Tell me more. Oh man, I got to get my buddy Mikey on the show, and he can tell you all oh, the life springers. You know, they're like what did everybody used to do back in the day, Est or whatever. You know, and life springers. Maybe not quite the same, but you get together, and it's very, you know, you're having a difficult time, and you're there, and you talk to people, and you reaffirm one another, and. I, I'm not doing it justice. So if there's people out there that are in Life Springers, I'm not meaning to diss you in any way. 
My buddy was in the program. We wholly support it. And any laughing that we do is only in conjunction with you guys. And uh, But I just love the fact that it was the Springer's End. To me, it, that, that, that connotates kind of an uplifting experience. Got it. Got it. Got it. Very cool. So, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And, and, you know, you think it was just because Phil was a little uh, younger back then, a little more adventurous. I mean, not that he doesn't go on, uh, you know, his own little jaunts on his base even today, but something like that is just classic. You know, you're there and right in the middle of a, you know, of a regular China writer, which, you know, being played exceptionally well in the midst of all of it, there's Phil noodling around on the bass and just kind of dominating the song if you're paying attention to him. Yeah, it's also got that um, very jazzy feel to it when you're listening to that. It's more of like, you know, sort of like the walking up and down the upright bass like kind of feel. Yep, yep. So I, I really enjoy that. We've, we've got a number of uh, tracks from this show because uh, there's so many that uh, it's kind of hard to go through and, uh, and leave some of them out and uh, not others. In fact, before we hop over to some marijuana news why don't we listen to another one here really fast as well well not really fast we we've taped it out and we'll listen to it this is uh we'll, we'll listen to whatever speed we want to listen to it damn right this this is like you know the essence of 69 and 1970 Wow, the 11, you know, it's, it's almost done, right? They're not even singing the words anymore. They're just playing it still, but they're playing it great. And I love how it just goes and stops on a dime, right? They're right in the middle of this great 11 jam and just like, boom, they stop and they take this entirely different tempo up and, and go into, a, you know, another classic that, um, you know, uh, those of us that, that were lucky enough uh, may have seen Jerry play uh, when they pulled it back out again in, what, 89 and 90, I think, for a little while. But... Um, Death Don't Have No Mercy, what a great tune. What a tough transition that is, too. I mean, those are completely, completely different time signatures with completely different feels. Like there's, there's nothing easy about uh, going from one to the other. Right. And, you know, I don't want to say they do it effortlessly, but they do. But, you know, from a, from a listener's perspective, uh, you know, their transitions, you know, are, are famous for being nothing if not, you know, somewhat smooth. Every now and then, you know, you run into a rough spot where they're not quite sure what they're going to do and, and don't quite get it right. But, uh, you know, by this point, they had played those tunes so many times. And it, I guess there were there were occasions when Death Don't Have No Mercy would sub in for Love Light after the Dark Star St. Stephen 11 stuff. So, in fact, um, just the other day, I was listening to our good buddy Rob Bleatstein on the... Uh, XM Serious Grateful Dead channel playing a song from one of my favorite stretches, the February, early March 1969 shows at the Fillmore West. And they've got a great Death Don't Have No Mercy in there that I was lucky enough to catch while I was driving in. If you're not listening to the shows that Rob spins, you're missing some of the best Grateful Dead there is. In fact, he's just listening to some of them has already given me ideas for shows uh, that we'll have coming up down the road here in terms of uh, the next few months that... uh, I'm looking for, but it, it's just so great to hear them play these songs. It's, you know, to me at this point, if you're like 1970 and you're thinking, man, it looks like the dead are starting to turn a corner here and, you know, I'm along for the ride, so I'll go along and, and I'm sure it's going to be great too, but it's got to be very reaffirming to hear this stuff, you know, the, the, the real cornerstones of like the primal dead still in place. Yeah, for sure. I, I love listening to this show because he always pulls out um, 
things that I wouldn't necessarily have listened to, but for, uh, but for his, um, influence. So very good stuff. And, uh, I've been hearing a ton of cool stuff on, on just Sirius XM recently, but they've been playing, I think, you know, just from, from my perspective, a lot more primal dead than I'm used to, uh, over the last couple of weeks. Yep. That's very true. And it's been fun to listen to, you know, I think one of the things about it that I realized as well that, and this is kind of a long circle around, but we'll get there. At this stage, they're, they're not just, I mean, part of what makes Primal Dead Primal Dead is that they're young and that they're, you know, still having fun in a performing, in a performance kind of way. You know, not just like, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that, you know, at least hopefully up until the end, they, they enjoyed being on stage and playing to the crowds and everything. But at this stage, they're funny. And as you're going to hear in some of our clips here in a few minutes, and even the intro to the concert, which we, we, we aren't playing today. Um, but if you want to go back and listen, boy, they, they talk after just about every song and their stories are funny and they're making jokes on the stage and, you know, it, 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 it's good stuff. It reminded me, I got that same feeling when I saw um, Fish's uh, New Year's Eve show, all the extravaganza that they did at midnight. I don't know if you had a chance to see that, but my son was at the show. I heard all about it from him and I went, it's all posted. You could see it. And I was kind of blown away. You know, I'm not enough of a fish head to pick up every little nuance of it. But I just love the fact that those guys, you know, in their late 50s, still have that playfulness in them to go and do something like a marching band and a choir. It was unbelievable. It was more than that. I mean, let's, let's stop and talk about that for a second. They, they referenced almost every other uh, New Year's they've done for the past, you know, 20 or 30 years. In fact, going back 40 years, you know, the, the whole countdown started off with a, with the whole time machine part of it of, you know, Trey saying, I wish I had a time machine so we could do it all again. And then referenced almost every gag that they've done. I mean, look, they, they've had in, you know, they had the clones, they had the, um, the, the hot dogs made an appearance, the wombat, the wombat, like all the way across the board, they, they pulled out pretty much everything to be like, Hey, we've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, I think people forget uh, how many times they've played that room and how many new year's Eve's like to say, like we're the band that's dominated Madison square garden for the last, you know, 25 years. That in itself is an accomplishment. And you think like one of the most important venues where like promoters are trying to think like who's going to be the best band to book and who's going to get the nod to play Madison Square Garden. Dude, do not piss off Billy Joel, okay? Do not piss off Billy Joel. Be careful when you talk like that, man. You know, this is his home stage. Yeah, well, his home stage just uh, got surpassed 82 times now. I think the Fish has played uh, Madison Square Garden. That's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, it's, it, it, I mean... Look, there's only like four bands that are even close, and that's Elton John, Billy Joel, The Grateful Dead, and Fish. And Fish now holds the mantle. And I think Fish, you know, gave a nod to a couple of other bands in the New Year's Eve performance as well. And the crazy part about that is like, you know, the, there are so many gags back to back to back to back when normally they sort of pick one theme, whether it's, you know, riding the ship in and playing like, you know, Soul Planet or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, MoMA Dance one year, another year it was um, uh, Susie Greenberg. Whatever they're going to do to kick in the New Year's Eve is usually a sort of singular thing. This was like gag after gag. The crazy part is that the night before, if you talk to most people that, that saw the shows, the first set from the 30th was was the one. You know, that was the one where people like were just like, look, that, that set was absolutely blistering. Like the novelty of the 31st is incredible, but, you know, musically, the 30th was just insane. Was that the one with the golden age and sand and... yeah. Yeah, my yeah. my my son Matthew, who was there, and give a quick shout out too, because I only know about the wombat from him, was was really uh, talking that show up a lot too. But but it's two different things, right? The thirtieth is just a, still a straightforward concert. The thirty first is is much more than that. And they still managed to kill it on most of the stuff that they played. For sure, for sure. I mean, and they were you know sort of segueing in and out of different things as they were trying to go through. What made the thirty first so incredible? When I when I wasn't there, but when I watched the uh, the video of it, what's so incredible to me is that. You know, sort of like this, this death don't have no mercy uh, coming out of uh, the 11, is that they're able to segue so quickly and just change, like, you know, uh, themes and ideas. And the only people that would really be paying attention to it are people that have, like, been following Fish for the last 30 plus years, you know, like to truly understand what they're doing and, and why they're doing it. It was sort of a, um, you know, paying homage to the fans that have stuck with them for the past 40 years to say, like, we're, we're going to take this from day one and we're going to take it all the way through the present. We're going to weave in different New Year's Eves from, you know, years past all the way through. And if you were here, then you know what we're doing. If you weren't here, then you probably don't. Or unless, you, you know, you're a student of, uh, of the band and you've watched, you know, the videos and you've spoken to friends. But you're not going to catch most of the references that we're making right now unless you're 100% on your game. And for the people that love that stuff, that are the true statisticians for fish, 
they're going nuts about it. You know, it's like, oh, that, that was from here and this was from there. And, you know, like the, the only reason you know that stuff is, is because you're on it. And again, to your point, you know, the Grateful Dead had a lot of different gags they did, but they were never that playful. Like, I can't think of another band that's, that's that interactive with their fan base. Never. I, I agree. Yeah, what would have Can you imagine if, if, if the Dead would have done that once? And, and maybe, it, you know, it, a lot of it had to do, I'm sure, with improved technology and the ability to be able to to do so much, but I think even if this was 20 years ago, you know, and Fish was reaching this milestone, they still could have had the choir, they still could have had the marching band, and, and you know, to your point, I, I think they would have, I mean, they're, they're really establishing their place, you know, in the pantheon of, you know, of, you know, all-time great bands, not that, you know, they weren't already there, maybe, but you know, to do something like this, and to put it together like that, and to have it just seem so effortlessly to the people who are watching it, I was really impressed. There's a certain part of it, though, for me, Larry, where, you know, it's almost, do they like the aspect of kind of making it almost cultish, right? You know, it's, uh, the Grateful Dead shied away from that very specifically. I think, you know, Garcia's um, uh, famous quote is, you know, I don't want to be a leader because I don't want to be a misleader. You know, whereas Fish has always kind of seen, like, what they can get the audience to do. You know, will the audience follow along with us? Whether it's creating different dances that everyone's got to learn, or whether it's, you know, the secret alphabet that they did in the early 90s that, you know, like, if they did a certain note, everyone would know to drop on the floor or to turn around and start clapping at the back of the room. You know, other things that would just freak out people that weren't initiated. And it's almost like, okay, like we've got this crazy power over the audience. You know, can we use it for our own amusement? Not necessarily for bad, but at least to crack themselves up of like, you know, I can't believe we got them to do it. Like, I don't know if you ever saw a big ball jam during the 90s. But, you know, like when the ball was in the air, the band played really, really fast. When someone held on to the ball, they slowed it down, right? And unless you actually understood what they were doing, you wouldn't know why they were jamming a certain way. And you had to watch this huge, like, you know, um, you know beach ball that was in the air to understand what they're doing. And so it's like things like that where, like, you have to, you kind of have to be following along all the time or, like, knowing when to say do during, you know, when, like, when they play the Simpsons theme. You know, there's all sorts of things, like, and anyone can figure out, you know, saying hood after Harry, you know, but but to figure out a lot of the other stuff. It, it and we love to take a bath. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you, you have to figure out the uh, the nuances, a lot of the smaller stuff and fish for a long time. It was almost like, yeah, you know, are, are they borderlining like, you know, can we Jim Jones this entire thing and just see how far our followers are? Like, <laughs> but not in a bad way, like, you know, right. but like but in a, in a very cultish right. way, in a, in a way of like, we like we got you guys. Now let's just see how far we can push it. And I think that you know, many other bands that have that much of a fervor about them have opted not to do that for fear that they're <laughs> they're going to go you know sort of overboard on it. Uh, I think the Grateful Dead's a classic example of like we're not going to talk on stage, we're not going to say anything. Like as you said, that used to be a big deal. If Jerry got you know five words out of his mouth. He's like ah, Jerry spoke, you know. But uh, but with fish, like you know, a harpua story can last half an hour. Right, and that's I mean, and that is all part of his you know his shtick and his show, and that's what makes them them. And but that you know, the point you just made about the dead, I think, is is right on, and that's what I was going to say. That is, we're going to listen to to more of these clips in a minute. You know, this was a period of time when they all spoke from the stage and they all talked. Phil talked, Jerry talked, Bobby talked. You know, sometimes the uh, roadies would get on the microphones and start talking. But I think that as they went along, you know, and 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 you know, the deadheads began to really deify Jerry. Uh, and, and you're right, he never wanted to be a leader, and I don't think he ever wanted to be seen as that. I think that it forced him, at least in his mind, to not talk so much, because when he talked, you know, you got to be careful. What are people going to, how are people going to interpret what he says? Are, you know, are they going to, like, you know, fall to their knees and start crying and, you know, shout hosannas to the heavens or something because, you know, Jerry made a joke or did whatever? And I, and I sort of feel like on a certain level, whether that might have been a little restrictive for him, you know, and, and he, he kind of reluctantly stepped out of the shadow. I, I'd be very interested to, you know, people who knew him to hear what they would say about that, because certainly Trey and the boys, God love them. I mean, they're, they're right out there still. They, you know, they still do a lot of the goofy stuff that they did 40 years ago. And, you know, they just have a great time doing it. Yeah. And for them, that's uh, always been part of, part of their shtick is very subtle things that they do, but they're, they're very much involved with uh, audience participation. Absolutely. Um, well, speaking of that, let, let's go into the next clip here for a minute, because I think it'll be great, uh, you know, for, for fish heads who are a little too young to remember to hear, you know, a sample of a time when uh, Jerry and the boys, uh, you know, used to like to yuck it up a little bit. Here's a 
song you can sing along with. Paranoid fantasy song. In the timbers of the Nario, the wolves are running round. The winter was so hard and cold, froze ten feet beneath the ground. Don't murder me, I beg of you, don't murder me. You know, he's having a ball. He's talking. He's telling funny stories. And how about that voice still? I mean, that that's like beautiful. Oh, my goodness. That's what I was going to say is the Garcia's voice there is so good. It's so clean. You can hear all the words. And- yeah, it's a really slow dire wolf. And it's a, uh, it appears to be almost an acoustic dire yep. wolf, too. Yep, yep, yep. And it's just it's great stuff. You know, it, it's uh, what an exciting time to be going to those shows and hearing, you know, this new stuff that was about to be on this next album that was coming out. It's like, hey, we may be going in a different direction, but, you know, you're going to have so much fun with this as well. And, you know, there's a part of you that says, boy, wouldn't it have been great just to, you know, kind of be able to have that uh, that snapshot of Garcia forever. But, you know, look, on the other hand, that's what made it what it was. And, you know, his his later on, you know, gravelly voice definitely served a purpose, you know, on songs that we've talked about where he really, you know, growls into the microphone and the crowd goes crazy. So... You know, I, I think that there's an appreciation for him at every stage of the, along the way, but this is just a stage with so much more in front of them than behind them, and you know, so much more promise and people being there, knowing that it was a great thing, but not possibly being able to imagine what it was going to become, or maybe they did, but they would have been very bright people. <laughs> well, let's talk about that for a second because that's a, that's a really interesting point. Like, so I got to see Fish in the early days, right? And I got to see Panic in the early days. I got to see Blues Traveler in the early days, and some, you know, some other ones like. Seeing Fish in 1990, I was convinced, convinced that I was witnessing something special and that it was, you know, this band was going to become the biggest band in, in you know, like when the Grateful Dead ended, when they ended, that the heir apparent was, was Fish, that, there, that you were on the cusp of something that was about to just go absolutely nuts. I wonder if seeing like the Grateful Dead in 69 and 70, you know, kind of had that same feeling where they're four or five years into their, into their careers. You know, they're great musicians before that, the way, you know, Trey was from back when he was a teenager. But, you know, like when you were seeing the Grateful Dead, let's say at the Fillmore or at the Avalon or at the Matrix, did you get a sense that like this is about to be like, you know, something massive? Or did you just get a feeling that you're kind of in this like moment in time where the San Francisco sound was the next big thing? Like, you know, the same way of being like in Seattle in 92 or, you know, being in New York for, you know, in 87 for hip hop, you know, like. I would expect that you know a lot of people that follow music like probably had an idea that that this was about to be you know these I'm, I'm sure everyone was telling all their friends the way I was telling every one of my friends like you got to go see this band Fish and, and sort of like creating the cult around it of of like you know if you haven't seen it you've got to see it which you know it doesn't happen that much I mean, it's happening to Goose right now right I was just gonna say isn't that what's happening to Goose right now right I mean yeah. we're 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 watching it in in real time mm-hmm. and and people are flocking to see them and I and I my feeling is part of that flocking is because they recognize how good they are and part of that flocking is because hey I want to be in on the beginning of something this is happening to me in my time right now so. I have a chance to be part of something, and that's that's a great feeling. You know that you don't get new bands rolling off the the line like this every year. It's you know probably five to ten years in between. You know really you know game changing bands. It seems to me if you take it over time. But I love what's happening with Goose, and it is fun to watch them. You know it's uh, it's exciting, and yeah, I, to answer your question, I I do think that there were people back then who had that feeling about the Grateful Dead. I think you know that from some of the stories we've heard, and from what you can see when you look at you know the music from the time that, you know, probably from the mid-60s, you know, up to 70, it was, a lot of it was the whole psychedelic sound, you know, the, the beginning roots of the jam band sound and all of that. And I think at first it probably was defined as the San Francisco sound, and it still is to some degree. But clearly over time, you know, the Grateful Dead pulled away from their fellow musicians. You know, some of them still did very well for themselves. Obviously, Jefferson Airplane, to name an obvious example, and, you know, Santana and, and, and lots of other bands from that time. But, you know, nowadays, when people romanticize about that era, my feeling at least is, is that they tend to go to the Grateful Dead as the band that was, you know, really kind of leading the scene and, and, and bringing the sound out to the rest of the, the country and the world. And there's probably some truth to that, you know. But 
just like, you know, Fish has the, not just the musical chops, but the showman chops and the ability to really go out and do this kind of thing. You know, the dead had that kind of wonderlust in them and they were willing to go take their sound everywhere. And by doing it, they themselves, you know, helped spread it around. You know, they weren't, they weren't going to get a traditional lot of, you know, airtime on your standard, you know, AM or FM rock station of the day. And so, you know, they would just bring their sound to the people. They went out to New York and said, here we are, and, you know, became the darlings of the East Coast as well. And they loved taping, you know, which I think was a huge difference. So, look, one thing on there is that we're watching, you know, we're watching Goose blow up right now, but I've seen a couple other bands in the last 10 years that have kind of gotten to the point that Goose is only to like completely and total, totally fizzle out. And I don't know whether or not this band's got, you know, sort of that je ne sais quoi that you can't put your finger on uh, that's going to allow them to, to take it to the next level the way that Fish did with it's not just musicianship, but, you know, pageantry. My question is, you know, of the ones that are out there right now in the jam band scene, is it Goose or do you think Billy Strings is the one that, you know, like, I mean, I'm watching Billy right now thinking this guy's career is, is real and that he's going to be, you know, something that's going to be massive for years and years and years to come in terms of just like how he plays, who wants to play with him, the style of his playing. I mean, so we've got sort of two right now that are vying for this top spot. And I'd say between the two, I, I give Billy Strings probably a much better chance of like really long-term success because I think he's got a genre that very few people are being really great at right now. I don't disagree. I think he's a great talent, but I would say this. I look at it a little bit differently. I look at Fish as being like, you know, the next great jam band and all of that. I look at Billy Strings as being this generation's Warren Haynes, right? A guy who's got amazing musical talent who can go and play with just about anybody. I think that ultimately he's going to prove to be more talented than Warren Haynes. And I say that very uh, gingerly because I think Warren is one of the most amazing musicians out there. But what I really love about Warren is, is the depth of his you know, production. He he covers everybody, and and then he still puts out his own tunes. And he's so good, he can step in and take over in the in the Allman Brothers. And people talk about his era with with Derek Trucks. You know, almost in the same reverential tones that you know people talk about. You know, as the original Allman Brothers. I mean, he was just an amazing, amazing musician. And I see Billy Strings a lot like that. You know, as an individual musician, he has the flexibility to drop in and play with whoever he wants to play. If he wants to put a band together, he can easily do that. And and you know, and and, and really tour in that regard um and you know look there's nothing wrong with having you know a, a, a two or three or four you know great new bands you know arriving on the scene all at the same time and you know again being at sacred rose you know to see a guy like Corey wong play and you know uh some of these other bands that are out there that some of them are a little older some of them are a little newer but i i i'm i feel very good about the state of you know jam band rock you know in the years to come and have you know been able to turn a corner in understanding and recognizing that notwithstanding my deep and undying devotion to the Grateful Dead, there's more than a you know good number of bands out there that uh, do very well for their own. And if you're not careful, you wind up you know falling hard for them too. And now you got uh, real dilemma: Am I listening to the Grateful Dead? Am I listening to Fish? Am I going to listen to Widespread? You know, before you even worry about which show or song. So you know, it, it gets to be a lot. Or you go see the Hooligans and the Spasmatics. You know, that's that's the big question these days. Is, you know, which one are you uh, going to catch? And if, if you talk to our producer Dan Hummiston, that's a that's a toss up. You know, like strange things are afoot in the villages. Is what I hear. I, I do too, and I love that about the villages. You know, they may not always be on the same side I am politically, but God, they know how to have a good time and rock and roll out, and good for them. This is. Uh, uh, we're, we're going to get Dan on the mic one of these days because he's talked about these 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 groups that are that he's so devoted to so much that you know he talks about them practically the way we talk about the dead and so we're, we're, yeah he's, he traveled to Florida to go see the Spasmatics you know he's on he's on Spasmatics tour which to me is truly amazing but it, it's going to be like you know the Talking Heads and tonight we're going to perform as the Tom Tom Club right you know one night they're the Spasmatics one night they're the Hooligans and. It's, it's a wonderful thing. So uh, for anybody out there who's heard them, you know, rock on. And anybody who hasn't, check them out because we're all about nothing, if not about all, you know, all about good music on this show. So, and just one other thing that I got a little note here that I, I just have to throw out because otherwise I'll forget till after we're off. You were talking, you said that Fish is on somewhere in 80, 81, 82 shows at Madison Square Garden. This would be neat. I would love to see somebody who says, I've seen 100 Fish shows only at Madison Square Garden. Don't you think that'd be cool to see a hundred? I mean, I saw a hundred Grateful Dead shows everywhere. Yeah, there, there's someone out there that'll say that. I mean, I, I know friends in New York from like Grateful Dead era that never left the tri-state area and still saw like 150 Grateful Dead shows. They'd say I only saw shows at Madison Square Garden, Nassau Coliseum, J 
giant stadium, Brendan Byrne Arena, maybe as far as like the Philly spectrum, but you know, never went more than 50 or 60 miles away from, from where they lived and still saw as many shows as I did. You know, if you lived if you lived in uh, the New York area in the late 80s, you could rack up like 15 shows a year just like in just the New York metro. Well, that's my buddy. We've had my buddy Larry on the show, and we've talked about my buddy Alex, and they were going neck and neck for a long time as to who was going to see more shows. And Larry was on the East Coast. Alex was on the West Coast. Larry gave up and moved out to the West Coast because he did the math and figured there were more shows to pick up on an annual basis closer to home in the Bay Area than there were uh, where he was in uh, New York or the Boston area. So I don't know. I, I never had that problem in Chicago. They'd come by a few times a year and we'd grab as many of those as we could. And, you know, I mean, we could go to, you know, to Deer Creek and, uh, you know, a few other places and would certainly take advantage of that as well. But um, there are definitely just some places in this country where if you want to be able to listen to live rock and roll music all the time, uh, these are the places that you need to be. And, you know, so it's it's no it's no secret, I don't think, uh, you know, that, that some of this great music takes off in those areas and, and, and really expands out. And yeah, if there's anybody out there, anybody who knows anybody out there who's only seen fish at Madison Square Garden and is going to hit 100 shows of fish at Madison Square Garden only, I'd, I'd love to know. I'd, I'd interview that person. That would be a great time. Yeah, I agree. I, I, think, uh, I think they have to exist. I think there might be people that have, you know, exclusively seen, the, uh, seen fish at, at MSG. So uh, I think that'd be a really fun thing to say. Here's the other crazy part is there's guys that have worked at MSG for years, you know, guys that are attendants or ushers or, you know, whatever that job is that have been there for a long time that have seen fish 80 plus times or, or at least, you know, 50 plus times the nights off on other ones. But, you know, there's people that probably know every single fish song at this point, just from having seen them so many times while they're like, you know, showing people to their seats, which is nuts. Wouldn't that be funny? Like if you could do a study on people who were just, you know, ushers and whatever attendants at these concerts and put them in a room and just start randomly playing fish tunes and see if they could identify them or dead tunes, you know, depending on, it'd be fascinating how many of them, you know, psychologically sunk in without them even realizing it. So you also, I mean, like, I don't know if you remember from like, you know, seeing a lot of Grateful Dead shows, once in a while you catch someone that was like an usher and you catch them dancing a little bit, you know, you see them, with their, their flashlight kind of spinning around. That was always fun for me because like, how, how lucky are you when you're working a job and all of a sudden it's your favorite band? I mean, like, I mean, everyone, everyone that works a, a venue like that eventually gets one of their favorite bands coming through. If you're a metalhead, your, your, your metal band comes through. If you're, you know, a, a pop fan, you know, like a lot of those guys, like, you know, be able to say, like, I've seen Taylor Swift 15 times, you know, like there, there's probably, you know, plenty of them that, you know, love her music. So it's gotta be a cool thing. Like if it's a band that takes up residency in your, uh, in your facility, like, I mean, what, what New Yorker, as you, you to your point earlier, what New Yorker doesn't love Billy Joel, if nothing else, just because, like, he's sort of, like, New York's, you know, uh, solo act, right? So, like, just working those shows and saying, I've seen Billy 30 times, uh, just from the nature of working at MSG, it's, it's got to be pretty cool. Look, you know, some of the greatest things that have ever happened have happened at MSG. You know, it's, it's not the world's famous arena for nothing, so the world's most famous arena. So, you know, it's, uh, sure, I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of plus side to that, and uh, you know, having those opportunities would uh, would certainly be exciting. But yeah, well, well, look, that's the beauty of all this live music, you know. And, and when it gets to the point where it takes on this level, that you know, certainly nerds like you and I can sit around and talk about it on this level. And you know, the scary thing is, I think even Dan is starting to learn it too. So, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I know Dan actually has Grateful Dead songs he likes now. It's great. I know. He's like, yeah, you guys, you use that song again. I really like. I remember what it was called. It was track number. Seven. Like, yeah, Dan, go ask the hooligans to play it tonight. See what they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're they're no spasmatics, but you know, they're 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 doing all right. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's dive into another uh, another musical clip here. This is this is a great clip because again, uh, we get a little funky talk up front, and if you pay attention to it, it it's, it's I think it's Bob trying to be serious, and Jerry or Phil or one of them stepping in afterwards and, and kind of setting everybody straight. But what's also amazing is it's one of the probably one of the earliest uh, public uh, performances of this particular tune. So uh, enjoy it. We're gonna do a song that's in the relative key relationship of, uh, I think it's called the relative subdominant, but that song I just suggested. Well, that's, uh, what he means to say is that this, this song we're going to do is related to Morning Dew.
I'm busy. I'm I'm busy Googling here relative subdominant to see if I can understand exactly what the hell Bobby was talking about. But uh, what a great version of that song. Brand new. I'm absolutely blown away right now because the intro is completely different. The coming into the microphones is completely different. They, they were raw at that point. That's a completely different Uncle John's than kind of what we've gotten to know and love over the years. And the other part is I was just sort of thinking to myself, like, I never think of Uncle John's as being a new song. Right, I always think it's like part of like the uh, the canon all the way through. I forget that it wasn't introduced until uh, in, until nineteen seventy, I guess. So for that to, to be happening, and the other thing that just blows me away is that you know I, I've never I've never given it any sort of um, uh, affiliation with Morning Dew in terms of how I think about the song. So I've never thought about being in the same vein as like a post a post apocalyptic kind of like feel to it. I've always thought about it as much more of a um, as a positive energy, like, you know, let's, let's get together type thing. And, you know, let's all for, you know, the common good, uh, as uncle John. So very like strange to me to hear them say that this is in the same vein. I don't know if they meant musically or whether they meant um, lyrically musically, maybe I, I get a, a bit more of a sense, but crazy to me is how, like when I think about the grateful dead's most iconic songs, uncle John's is probably, you know, top five for me as far as the song that like, it doesn't matter how you feel about the band. It's impossible not to like that song. I agree. Um, it, it's always been one of my favorites. I think we had talked at one point that prior to this, they were playing it, but calling it the main 10, just playing the, the chords and the basic uh, the basic notes of it and everything. And, and they came out and, and, and what a great tune it is. So I, I've, I have Googled this and my apologies to Bobby. The subdominant is the fourth degree of a scale or can be found four tones or notes above the tonic. The subdominant of the C major scale you will also see the subdominant chord as an inversion of its root chord. Any chord, including the subdominant, can be mixed around a little bit. They call these mixed up chords inversions. Okay, so there you go. Uh, not that anybody in the crowd necessarily understood, or maybe there were some music majors there who really got into it at that point. <laughs> uh, or, or they just have the same attitude that most of my friends would have, which is shut up and play. Yep, and, uh, yep, yep, yeah. yep, very true. <laughs> They really wanted to hear any of the uh, the, the, the banter because it was normally from Bobby just nonsense. So, you know, we do have marijuana in our name, so it's probably not a bad idea to, to just touch on it. So here, I'm, I'm going to hit you first with uh, a surprise question and see how quickly you can dance on your feet and answer this one. But um, it, this just occurred to me. And I, every time I pick up the newspaper right now, I see pictures of California, like with water up to the tops of people's houses. And I know that the whole state isn't flooded. Uh, but I also know that a lot of the heaviest rain is falling up north and that the uh, Humboldt Valley area and, and a lot of those parts have really been pummeled hard. Are you hearing anything at all about how any of this is affecting uh, any of the grows up in that part of the world? I, I'm not right now, uh, but largely because it's not outdoor season. So unless the humidity is so bad inside some of the greenhouses, you know, I don't think we're having much of an effect. If this was happening in, let's say, late October, then yeah, we'd, we'd be, or mid October, we'd be seeing people panicking right now. But I think that, you know, based on the uh, the cycle, you know, a lot of things haven't been replanted yet and it shouldn't be affecting indoor all that much unless your power is going out, at which point, you know, even with the generator, <laughs> you're probably in a little bit of trouble these days. But uh, it's no joke out here right now. There is a ton of rain. I mean, granted, we need it, but uh, it, it's, causing all sorts of problems, uh, especially around like Santa Cruz and Monterey, where they're just getting you know, mudslide after mudslide and seven inches of rain in a day. So not affecting the crop, but definitely affecting the state. Well, okay, well, the, that'll keep you honest then. Um, that's a lot. And, and by the way, when I, say, when I say affecting the state, that also means that Mammoth and Tahoe have the best ski conditions of all time. So if you're out there listening and you're thinking about a ski vacation right now, I'd recommend stay away from the crowds in Utah right now and instead, you know, go check out Tahoe or go check out Mammoth if you can even get to them. You know, the roads been closed getting to both places for, you know, the better part of the last couple of days. Uh, I think Mammoth got 72 inches in a 48-hour period. And I think at the peak of Mammoth, it's gotten more snow than any other place on Earth, including Alta, Utah. So, uh, you know, check check the stats, but you want to see how much like precipitation is really coming off the uh, Pacific Ocean right now? Uh, look no further than the snow report at the Palisades or at uh, Mammoth right now. It's, it's insane. 
I'm making reservations next year for Lake Mead on a houseboat. You got me, you got me going, man. Um, right? I mean, you get all that water at once. You know, hopefully they can find a way to capture as much of it as possible because who knows whether they're going to keep getting rain like this. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a, a very real concern is, you know, how do we, how do we actually uh, harvest it? You know, it's, it's there, but a lot of it's draining right back into the ocean. So if you're reading the environmentalists right now that are, you know, are, are still trying to speak to the state and saying, hey, here's a real chance for us to, uh, to fix some of these problems, we have to act really, really fast to make sure that the water that's coming in stays in and that there isn't like massive dam releases, et cetera. It's like, how, how do we get, how do we fill Lake Powell? How do we fill Lake Mead? How do we fill, you know, the upper reservoirs? How do we fill um, the Mount Shasta Reservoir up north, which, you know, is the, the major source of water for California? All these things are, are super important to try to pull us out of the drought right now. Well, hopefully uh, at the end of the day, uh, a lot of good will come of it, but also recognizing that, you know, certainly some bad has come of it. And, um, and anytime we get these, these you know, crazy major uh, weather events, um, there is always that side of it that, uh, you know, we can't forget about. So hopefully people will stay safe and uh, listen to uh, whatever the experts in their area tell them to do. Um, and hopefully uh, California will uh, be able to benefit from this water coming down. I guess Oregon's getting a little bit of it too, but uh, there's stuff going on in Oregon as well. So, you know, you're, you're, you're our Commerce Clause guy, man. So I'm just going to come right out and ask you. I, I've, I slept that day in law school. A lawsuit has been brought uh, by an Oregon uh, cultivator who wants to sell his grown marijuana outside of the state of Oregon. And his argument is that it's unconstitutional for the state of Oregon to have passed a law saying that he cannot sell his marijuana outside of the state. Now, setting aside for a minute, he would need a state out there saying that he could sell his marijuana into the state. What do you think about this? Does this guy have a leg to stand on or can Oregon come back and say, we're regulating this just like states, you know, regulate alcohol and everything else? Um, you know, the, the federal government has chosen not to, you know, impose its own limits on it. Yeah, look, it's a novel, it's a novel approach. I mean, you can certainly, um, you can certainly take the same tactic from a, a commerce clause or dormant commerce clause perspective that you would for other products. The problem is other products that, you know, share these same attributes aren't illegal. So from a federal government perspective, you know, we've already asked and answered this question, um, granted, I think, incorrectly in, you know, a couple a couple major cases that, you know, stretch back to, I think, 1999 or 2000. But the, the simple answer is that um, the Dormant Commerce Clause has been used to say that, you know, intrastate commerce needs to protect interstate commerce. Uh, I think that that's going to be relitigated soon. But for a, a litigant in Oregon to try to go out there on their own to try to challenge this, um, challenge the rule of Oregon, by the way, every other state in the union, I don't think it's got a, a great chance of, of passing muster. I do think it's a much more likely outcome that if the states themselves said, hey, we're going to do an interstate compact, that they would be able to do it. Um, but that's you know, at the state level, and that would require the feds to come in and say, no, 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 state, you can't do this. But that's not what's happening here. This is you know, an individual litigant that, in my mind, is just you know, throwing money down the drain to try to prove a point. And we've seen other cannabis companies, i.e. Harborside, do that in the past, only to come back and realize that it was a, a tremendous waste of time and resources so the only thing I can think of is there must be someone behind this lawsuit that uh, has much deeper pockets that's willing to fund this thing to, to try to force an issue or to see what the outcome would be. But oftentimes, you know, if, if you're not certain of an outcome, my recommendation is don't file a suit because, uh, you know, now you're stuck with the results and you're stuck with the precedent that it may set. And in this case, I think the person's going to be you know, deeply disappointed in what the outcome is. And stuck with the legal fees, too. So uh, there's always that section of it as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, you know, without even without even addressing the issue directly, you know, let's just, you know, play the old law school game and assume that he wins. Okay. Now he says, now I want to sell my uh, Oregon-grown marijuana yeah. into Illinois. Who's the buyer? Illinois says, you can't sell into our state. Can he now file a lawsuit in Illinois? Does he, can he go around to every state in the country and file a lawsuit and say, your law stopping me from bringing my Oregon marijuana? I mean, that's what the article suggests, that ultimately the courts, by making rulings, could take the issue of, of, of at least interstate commerce right out of the hands of the federal government. And to me, that just screams, you know, constitutional law 101. Boy, oh boy, this, you know, if you ever see this, jump up and, and scream. But let's get really nerdy here and 
ask yourself the question whether or not he even has standing to do that. Well, right. Yes. So I don't know if he could go into Illinois. I'd, I'd suggest that Illinois would say, look, you don't have standing. You know, it's great you want to sell in this, our state, but you've got no nexus to our state. Right. Just you're looking for some place to sell. But but and what if Illinois said, yes, it's, uh, ultimately the federal law has to come into play. You know, that's the part about I, I, a state can say you can do it, but that requires the federal government to continue to, you know, kind of take the coal memorandum approach and look the other way. And, you know, we, we haven't seen nobody's tested that market yet. We've talked about this, but it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out and, and what people try to do with it. Yeah, and technically, the coal memorandum is no longer even good guidance. So, you know, that that was repealed under sessions. Oh, I wouldn't even say repealed, but the guidance was repealed. It was never law. It was, it was you know, dicta that was put forward by a, by a, a U.S. attorney. But um, right now, the, the chances of anything happening on an individual basis, you know, what I would say to that person is do what everyone else has done for years. And if you want to sell across state lines, there's there's a, a forum for that. It's just not legal. <laughs> it's it's been done for been done for ages. And in many ways, the, the more pressure you put on the states to realize that they're getting saturated with West Coast cannabis in their, quote, legal state should be the catalyst to get them to change. And if we've noticed anything, if 2022 was the year of anything, it was the year of lack of enforcement. It was the year that, you know, like every single legal company that's going, wait a second, you guys are taxing us, you're, you're regulating us. Everything we do, we have to do that by the book, but you refuse to do anything about the illicit market. If I have any hope for 2023, it's that enforcement goes back to being um, substantial enough and be punitive enough that people decide they don't want to do it because right now what's what's killing our industry faster than anything else is lack of enforcement. And, and, and I'm talking to you regulators in every single state. You're all guilty of it. Uh, you know, California, Oregon, Washington, probably the most guilty of it because they've got the biggest you know, producers in their states that are letting this cannabis get into other states. But, you know, you are single-handedly killing the industry by not enforcing your own laws, while at the same time enforcing the laws against the people that are trying to play by the rules. You're penalizing the good players at the expense of letting the bad players go free. And it's a travesty to our industry right now. I think that's true too. And you know that still speaks to the dysfunctional, in my opinion, the dysfunctional nature of government, uh, even today when it comes to something like marijuana, uh, that they time and time again, you know, in my opinion, you know, kind of, Never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And, uh, you know, all of this drags on uh, so much longer than it has to. Before we go on, I, I want to throw another musical clip on here because before we run out of time, I want to make sure we get to all of them today. Uh, Dan, throw this one on. This is also uh, uh, a real uh, throwback to, you know, the era that just ended, the, the, the Primal Dead era uh, with Jerry on a great cryptical and into one of the snazziest drum solos I've ever heard the Grateful Dead do. You know, cryptical. That would, they're probably getting ready, getting close to the point to put that away too, uh, and just you know eventually slip over into the other one until the, its, its brief resurrection in the mid 1980s. But they still play it great. It's still fun to hear. And what about that drum solo, man? He was just moving along at a at a pace I've never heard them play it before. Yeah, it was ripping. The, the other thing is, was, was Garcia playing a pedal steel on that cryptical? It, it's super twangy. It was definitely twangy, and uh, yeah, they had some good stuff going there too. It's it's uh, it, it's really such a great show, and, and basically all the songs that we've been listening to, not quite in order, I'll, I'll make up one long stretch in the second set, and it, it's about an hour and ten minutes of just if you have the time to shut everything else out and you know go find your favorite strain and you know sit in your favorite chair and just crank that. It's it's it makes for a fun evening.
or at least part of an evening. That's true. Uh, I got to say, actually, I, 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 for the first time in a couple of years, I smoked flour over the holidays. Uh, and to yeah, say it's enjoyable to, uh, to be back on the, the train and, and actually smoke a joint or two. Sure. Some things never go out of style. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, music played a big part of that. Of you know, sitting around with a bunch of old buddies and uh, listening to tunes and smoking some weed. So it's uh, it's nice to, you know, as you said, you know, it never does go out of style. Right. And Utah, man, what a season they had. Right. You know, your Utah Utes. That was uh, you know really impressive. They didn't quite make it done in the Rose Bowl, but I was watching them. You know, they took out USC. A lot of people were screaming, me included, because I thought that meant Michigan was going to have to play OSU, which. We luckily avoided, but not luckily because we would have both been in the championship game. But nevertheless, hats off to TCU and Georgia, by the way. Those Utah Utes, man, you're, when I think of Utah Utes, I think of you. Yeah, uh, well, I'm a, definitely a, a big Utah advocate, <clears throat> and uh, I don't really follow too much college football, but when I do, it's certainly uh, what Utah's doing. And this year, I thought that, um, you know, they, they finished as well as they could have with four, with four defeats. You know, I think they were the highest ranked team that had four losses. But all of their losses were pretty darn good teams. Uh, I was a little disappointed to see them get absolutely crushed uh, by Penn State. But other than that, you know, they had, a, they had a heck of a good season. I think they've got a really good program. So, you know, as I say, go for the football, stay for the skiing. See, in Ann Arbor, they said go for the football, but there is no skiing. Unless you want to do cross-country skiing. So, you know, not quite the same. But, uh, you know, it is good football. I, and for anything that, you know, builds a bigger stadium at Utah and for, for Utah, the Olympics was originally the reason they did it. And then it was the, um, then it was the Utah Utes football team becoming better, but that attracted a bigger and bigger band. So I actually have gotten to see the Rolling Stones play in Rice Eccles Field and see some other big bands play there as well. So anytime it attracts, you know, bigger concert headliners to, uh, to where I was living, I am all for it. Absolutely. Uh, one last question before we uh, jam our way out of here. Massachusetts, I've seen that they're claiming that they've hit the oversaturation point and now it's having a rebound effect and bringing the price down, which is interesting to me because I didn't really think of Massachusetts as being one of the more expensive legal states out there. They're certainly not in Illinois' league in terms of price. But everybody talks about, well, there's only so many marijuana smokers and you know the, the marijuana market is going to ultimately reach its, you know, its oversaturation point. And, and I, conceptually, I understand that, but, you know, I, could you make the same argument about beer? There's only so many beer drinkers in the world and, you know, the beer companies don't have any problem coming out and generating more and more and more beer. Yeah, you know, to an extent. I mean, I think at a certain point there, there is oversaturation and, you know, there's, there's probably beer that, or beer companies that have to adjust their production schedules. But profit margins, they are a lot higher on beer than they are in, in cannabis, at least in terms of what you know uh, net margin productions are. You know, I think that gross margin productions, cannabis does great. Uh, and you know, breweries are obviously building you know production. Once you built the brewery, it's it's like an extraction facility. You can just turn on and off the capacity. Whereas you know, for, for flour production, it's pretty hard to do. Uh, what I'll say is that in Massachusetts, the article that you read is definitely accurate in terms of you know overall production. But what I'll say is that some of the best producers in Massachusetts are still doing just fine, which is something we witnessed for many years in Washington and Oregon. When, you know, if you remember back five or six years ago, everyone's like, oh, the bottom's falling out, the bottom's falling out. Well, the, the top shelf never had an issue. The top shelf always maintained price. And it wasn't until, you know, massive amounts of people migrated to the lower cost, you know, mids that uh, were hitting the market that you saw, like, you know, a, a degradation in not price, but in terms of production of high end. In Mass right now, we're still seeing the, the best producers are still selling everything. It's the guys that are producing mediocre weed that are suffering really badly right now. I hear that. Well, Illinois, in the midst of all of our chaos, they just announced that they're going to be dropping more uh, applications for, I think, another 50 or 60 dispensary licenses. So we're, you know, they're getting ready to crank it back up again. Hopefully some of these other places will get on the market soon and be very curious to see what it does to the price point in Illinois. Well, Illinois is one of the last... Who, by the way, had a tremendous year. Yeah, it's one of the last good markets. Yeah, one, one of the only good markets, unfortunately. We'll see how, I mean, look, every market is good until oversaturation, and then they all go to shit. You know, California is certainly leading leading that charge of what, what we're seeing in terms of overproduction. I'm very hopeful that 2023 will be a much better year than 2022 was for the industry. And, you know, when people talk about New Year's resolutions and what you hope to see, you know, my biggest hope for the industry right now is that we'll see a... Uh, a much different market than we did last year because what we've witnessed in the last year or two uh, in terms of the cannabis industry is completely and totally unsustainable. So it's, yeah, maybe please see a year where companies actually stay in business and, uh, and prosper because 
you know, last year was absolutely brutal to the industry. Yep. No, it's an industry that, you know, whether it's shot itself in the foot, whether it's just been, uh, you know, the, 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 the battle of trying to, you know, get yourself recognized and all of that. Um, it would be nice to see a year when we could get the Safe Banking Act passed. It would be nice to see a year when, uh, you know, states could resolve a lot of their own internal issues and, and even some interstate issues. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if by the end of 2023, we didn't have to file lawsuits in Oregon and, you know, we could sell across state lines, or at least people were talking about making it happen sooner rather than later. And, you know, there's a lot to be hopeful for. And, you know, we just hope that the, the bad elements will stay out of the way and the good elements will step in and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get something done. So, so to be the, the cynic here before we uh, we go, Larry, are you still thinking safe has a chance? I mean, you're not you're not past the point where you're just done being loosey with the football. You know, look, if you if you were going to say to me, do I think it has a chance to pass this year, next year, or the year after that? Uh, no, I, I mean, in, in the current formation that we've just seen take place in the House of Representatives, I think it's going to be difficult to get anything passed. Um, you know, marijuana, even though it, it's you know bipartisan in its appeal. Uh, I think we still run into the problems that, you know, that have been going on in the Senate forever with McConnell and Schumer and nobody willing to give the other person the satisfaction and the political points that would come with being the party behind the bill that gets it done. And there's probably enough people who are cynical enough to say that, you know, the marijuana market's doing just fine right now the way it is. Uh, you know, we're doing them a favor. We don't need to, we don't need to legalize it and bring all that on board. So, you know, look, I'm, I'm not the person to talk to about politics right now. I'm, I'm kind of disillusioned with everything that we've been seeing. And I don't want to get into that. So I'll just say that um, it's right there. It's, it's easy pickings. It, there's no reason for it not to have already been done. I'd like to think that, you know, people are thinking about it, even if not publicizing it yet, that, you know, it's going to be something that they're, they're going to prioritize this coming year. And we'll have the same conversation next year. <laughs> yes, we will. Yes, we will. Uh, well, I, uh, I'm glad you're still hopeful. So I, I can tell you that I am not. But look, every year is another chance for change. And, um, you know, I would love to be wrong. I would love to see something happen this year um, that doesn't it doesn't involve, you know, only the best companies surviving at the expense of everyone else failing. And as of right now, I think that, you know, more likely than not, we're we're facing off against another year of headwinds um, in the canvas industry. But Hopefully, um, good music and positive uh, vibes will pull us through and, and get us through another year. So I will bank on the Grateful Dead releasing more good uh, Dave's picks a lot faster than I'll bank on the uh, <laughs> on the canvas industry making substantial changes in Congress. Amen, brother. I'll be looking for him to come in and be talking all about him. Well, thank you, Rob. Uh, great show today. A lot of fun. Enjoyed the little fish dive there for a few minutes and, you know, discovering another wonderful Grateful Dead show to occupy my drive time for the next few days. Amen. Well, from uh, wet and rainy and cold Southern California, uh, Rob Hunt from Linnea Holden signing off, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks, Rob. Uh, great to talk to everyone this week. Uh, we've got a lot of great stuff coming up in the next few weeks. We're working on some interesting guests. There's some great Grateful Dead shows coming down the line. Please stay tuned. Tell your friends all about us and uh, get them to listen, too. On the way out, um, we're going to listen to a track that actually was played a little bit earlier in the set than some of the tunes we've just been listening to. But this is the uh, version of Easy Wind that I referenced before. And uh, it, it's just musical. You're not going to get to hear Pigpen sing, but about 10 seconds into it, he gives out a very enthusiastic whoop because he's having a great time up on the stage. And you can really feel the energy. And uh, this was also a tune that was getting ready to come out on Working Man's. And uh, the boys really chewed it up that night in a good way, uh, capping off a great show. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly, everyone. Thanks for listening.
listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Cannachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.